Good morning, church. Wonderful to be with you. As I said in first service, I, I, I love the, seeing the giftedness of our people, and sometimes in its planned and prepared ways, often it's spontaneous and spur-of-the-moment ways. I thought it was so fitting on this Sunday in first service, as the video is playing, honoring Kyler, the first time he ever saw it, the sound was all messed up, so in the middle of the video, he goes and fixes his own video. Is that perfect or what? And of course, uh, you may or may not know, uh, Curtis was scheduled to lead today. He's sick, and Jansen got the call at 10.15 last night to warm up in the bullpen, and he's here. So I, I love the giftedness of our people, whether it's planned or not planned. Thank you for all the ways that you uh, make this community what it is to experience God. We've been studying as we lead up to Easter, and then a couple weeks after, we're, gonna, we're looking at this book the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's a place where God gives us wisdom on how to or not to pursue joy that actually lasts and endures in our life. And we've seen, you know, everything from the kind of big picture. We've had some fun with some of the chapters, looked at some problems and issues of life last week. And we're getting to the section of the book where it's really, really practical. Uh, where the teacher, he calls himself, is journaling and sharing the wisdom of God and his experience of life on really earthy, practical, day-to-day -day matters like we'll look at today, money. He's going to talk about God's perspective on money. And I'll say in advance, don't worry, I'm not asking for any. We're not going there, but let's see what God has to say about this. If you have your Bibles or devices, we're in Ecclesiastes chapter 5. And what this section represents, if you have a modern translation, you probably see this, it's set off uh, because it's poetry. It's a song. So certain places in the book he's journaling and certain places he sings literally the wisdom of God to us. And that's what you're getting here, a song of all things about money. So would you please stand out of respect for God as we read from the word of God? See the words on the screen that we say after just an expression of our gratitude for a God who speaks. Word of Lord from Ecclesiastes chapter 5, verse 10. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is missed. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I've seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there's nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. This, too, is a grievous evil. As everyone comes, so they depart. And what do they gain since they toil for the wind all their day? Pray with me if you would. Father God, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I can't help hearing the song about money from the teacher here and be taken back to one of the more famous songs in at least Broadway history. Uh, one of the longest-running musicals in all of the history of Broadway is the play The Fiddler on the Roof. Maybe you've heard this, maybe in some high schools or middle schools, you've actually put on the play. 
But I love this story. It, it really centers on the life of a father of several daughters who's wrestling with how to keep his footing in an ever-changing world. How do you know what traditions you need to hold on to and what ones to let go of? My favorite part of his character, though, is his very earthy, conversational prayer life that he has with God. He's just like milking cows and going down the road and just, just very naturally talking to God about everyday life stuff. This is not the high church liturgy. There's a place for that, but it's not. He's not quoting the Psalms. He's just talking to God about life. And of course, if you've seen the play or the movie, one of his most famous songs that he ever sings, like the teacher, is a song about money. Has anybody heard this? Does anybody know what it's called? If I Were a Rich Man. Now, you need to thank my wife because I was going to play the clip, but I'm going to spare you this big burly man dancing and bumba beating or whatever he says. Uh, I would often inflict this on our children. I would sing this anytime it's on. I got I to gotta dance a little bit, so I won't. I will restrain myself. But I, I do want you to hear his prayer because it's real. The song is a prayer from beginning to end. Here's the opening lines of the prayer. I wonder if we can identify with this in our culture. Dear God, he says, you made many, many poor people. I realize, of course, that it's no shame to be poor, but it's no great honor either. <laughs> so here's his prayer. What would have been so terrible if I had just a small fortune? Can you identify with this? I love it. God, I don't need to, you know, I don't want to be Elon Musk or anything. Just give me just a little fortune. And he goes to sing about all the things he imagined he would have in his life if he had this small fortune. I would have this wonderful house and filled with, the, with, with animals and all sorts of things so that, so that here's this great line. People would walk by and say, here is a wealthy man. And he sings about the influence and significance his wife could have in the community and they would have servants there. And, and I love one of the, my favorite sections. He said, people would come and ask me, for advice. And he said, it didn't even matter what I would say. I could be wrong because he says, and I quote, if you're rich, they think you really know. <laughs> and then he sings about the sweetest thing of all to him is that he would have the time to be able to sit around with the learned and discuss scripture hours at a time during the day. And then he comes to the closing line. Again, hear the prayer. Lord, who made the lion and the lamb, you decreed I should be what I am. But would it spoil some vast eternal plan if I were a wealthy man? That's a great prayer, isn't it? Let's be honest. Can you identify with it at all? Honestly, in your heart, do you identify with this prayer? How does our culture identify with this prayer? Is he right about this? Would a small fortune for us give us a life of leisure? Leisure. Would it give us a life of influence and significance? Would it give us a life full of spiritual opportunity that we wouldn't have otherwise? Is he right? Then we come back to the song of the teacher in Ecclesiastes. The one who has been chasing and pursuing the joy of God that might endure and last for us. And when I come to this song, here's what's interesting to me. He literally sings a different tune. The writer of Ecclesiastes, by the way, is not someone who is thinking about the possibilities. He's already told us in chapter 1, I was wealthy beyond anybody in Jerusalem before me. He's got everything Tebia just sung in prayer for. And as has been true in different places in the book, he's looking around at all of us, 
late in life, and he's saying, I want to give you the wisdom of God and the wisdom of experience about this thing you think about or have to deal with all the time, this idea of money. And the question is, will we listen to the wisdom of the teacher? And I will say, this, this section and this, and this part of the text and even the message here is really, really practical. It's really earthy. So this is more teachy than it is preachy. Hopefully it's never preachy, but you know what I mean. So I want to walk through what is the teacher's reflection and wisdom inspired by the Spirit of God late in life to say, I want to give you wisdom, practical wisdom about what we do with money. And the first thing that you see is kind of the big picture. And we're going to go quickly through what he says here, and then we're going to step back to the big picture again. But what's the big picture? He says, of all things, I want you to understand the limitations and the limits of money in your life. He doesn't say it's terrible, bad. We'll talk about that more. But he said, just understand the limits of money. And again, this is talking from someone who has it. Be careful about the pursuit of money for its own sake. Why? Because it's incredibly limited. And he'll walk through in this song several different ones. So let's look at them quickly. In verse 10, the first thing he will tell us is that money does not satisfy. Whoever loves money, he says, never has enough. Whoever loves money. Important word, wealth, is never satisfied. I'm sure you, a lot of you have probably heard this before. The question is often asked, especially for, to those who have a lot of money, how much is enough? Have you heard this and you know what the answer is? John D. Rockefeller, at the time he was asked the question, was the wealthiest man on planet Earth. A reporter asked him one time, Mr. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? Anybody know what he said? You can say a little bit louder. What did he say? Just a little bit more. And that's the nature of money, is it not? The wealthiest man had more money than anyone on planet Earth, and it wasn't enough. I need a little bit more. Whether you got 10 bucks or 10 million, we always want a little bit more. And this is coming from someone who has it. And he says it doesn't satisfy. doesn't mean it's terrible to have. It just doesn't satisfy us. Or maybe we take it from the great theologian Jim Carrey who appropriately enough plays the Grinch in one of the great depictions of the Grinch who stole Christmas. When someone asked him in a serious moment of his life, this is the wisdom he gave. I hope everybody could get rich and famous and have everything they ever dreamed of so that they will know that that is not the answer. Will we listen to the people that actually have what we think we want? And they say it's fine, but it does not satisfy us. Or one of my favorite quotes in all of Christian history, I probably say it at least once a year. I believe one of the greatest quotes in all of Christian history after the Bible, Augustine, the great spiritual leader Hippo in Africa, said this, O Lord, you have made us for yourself, but our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Then he tells the story of his whole life, searching for the rest and the shalom and the satisfaction in all of this stuff here, just like the teacher, only to come around and say, we're left with restless hearts and lives until we find rest in you. Money will not rest your soul. It's the first bit of wisdom he gives. In verses 11 and 12, what he says is wealth can be a thief. Think about this. From someone who has it, wealth can be a thief of the very things we think wealth can give us. Security. And peace. Wealth can actually steal the things we think money can give us the most. 
As he say in verse 11, as goods increase, so do those who consume them. The more you get, the more other people will want to take. Go win the lottery sometime and see how many friends you all of a sudden have. By the way, I'll just drop this in, just conversationally as we go through. If you are like me, even as the teacher is giving us this wisdom, there's a little tevia in me that says, I know what you're saying, but I'd sure like to try it out. Some of you have that? (laughs) I know it won't satisfy me, but I'd sure like to try a little bit. Listen, Holy Spirit-inspired teacher tries his whole life and then comes back and says, please listen to me. Not that it's bad to have, but don't think that this will give you Peace and security, often it will steal it. He goes on to say this in verse 12. The sleep of a laborer is sleep, uh, sweet, whether they eat little or much, but as for their rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. How many times have you heard people of wealth and power and influence and significance say something like this? I've heard it again and again. Man, a big part of me wishes I could just go be a greeter at Walmart. Because I can do my job, I can bless people, and I could go to bed, and I don't have to think about all of this stuff. Hear this? Teacher in wisdom says, wealth can be a thief. I pass this on to you. This is secondhand to somebody who's begging us to listen. I've got a good friend of mine, one of my best friends in life. Doesn't live here, one of my best friends. Tells me the story of a good friend of his. I've never met this guy, but he tells me the story of a good friend of his who is incredibly wealthy. I mean, investment, huge investments, all that kind of stuff. Incredibly wealthy. You got me? I mean, really wealthy. And he was sitting down talking to my friend, Carl. That's not his name. I'll just say Carl. So he's talking to Carl. He said, Carl, I wish I could get people to understand what I'm about to say. He said, it's fine. I have money. I've got yachts. I've got all this stuff. But he said, I can't tell you how hard it is. He said, what people don't understand is when you have a lot, when you have a lot, it turns up the volume on the demons in your life because you can get whatever you want. His particular struggle was women. And he's worked hard to try to follow God's way, but here's the reality. He said, I can go places and nobody knows who I am, but he said, it's almost like there's this radar, this magnet, and people come up and give themselves to me. Do you feel that? And he said, whatever your struggle is, like having a lot amplifies it even harder because you think you can do it all. What a sobering word from a person that's more wealthy than probably anybody in this room. He's not saying don't get it. He's just saying, please understand what you think you want may steal the very thing you think you will get. Wow. That's wisdom from scripture and other people's lives. Verse 13, greed destroys the one who hoards wealth. Not who has it, don't hear this, saying, oh, it's bad to have money. Greed is the one, greed is something that destroys the one who hoards wealth, who pulls it in just for their own selves. It's the Scrooge factor, right? It's just for me, and I'm going to take care of it, and none of it gets out. I was just thinking about this week. I know I've known this before, but it just kind of came out as I'm writing this message. I'm thinking, you ever thought about this? Do you know what the root of the word miserable is? You ever thought about this? Miser. It's a Latin word that means wretched. And someone that is so internalized with the things that they have. By the way, we can do that with 10 bucks, 10 million, by the way. But someone that hoards and takes it in is literally living a miserable life. And that's what the teacher says here. One of the more poignant moments 
in Scripture, Jesus, in the middle of his ministry, is approached by a man who's having a dispute with his brother about the estate of his deceased father. And he says, Jesus, would you tell my brother to give me my share of the estate? Can I just say this? This seems like a, just a Bible story that you go past through. I worked for several years in estate planning and law, and I'm telling you it's one of the ugliest places of the human heart because you see a loved one die, and all of a sudden the piranha come out, dishonoring the one they claim to honor, and they're fighting over money they did not earn themselves. Jesus encounters that everyday moment of life. That's when he tells the story of the rich fool building the bigger barns. But listen to the wisdom of Jesus who comes along the teacher here. Luke 12, verse 15, he says, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. And then this line, if you forget everything else, we say, can we take the words of Jesus in? A person's life does not consist in the abundance of their possessions. And I hear it, but the Tevi in me struggles to believe it. Your life isn't defined by your stuff. I have to say this pointedly to men sometimes. Your identity is not based on your bank account. It's not. Your life is about more than that. And the teacher here, as well as the teacher of all teachers, who's richer than anybody, tells us this. Greed destroys the one who hoards wealth. Verse 14, a simple reality. Money and possessions are vulnerable. We know this, right? You can't keep it. And you can lose it pretty quickly. Some people do, but some people don't. I think about one of the gifts, can you call it that, of COVID? I hated COVID, the pandemic. But you know, one of the things COVID did for us is it exposed our idols. Exposed the clay feet of our idols. You hear what I'm saying? And those of us who kind of built our security and peace on our 401k all of a sudden had our eyes opened. And on the invulnerability of our physical safety in this world. No. Again, that's not saying that part's a good thing. But money is vulnerable. It's not going to sustain or last. And then last one, you know, we'll just touch on this quickly because there'll be another whole piece on this in Ecclesiastes. But one theme that runs throughout the book, death is the great equalizer, right? No matter how rich, wealthy you are, there's a tombstone with your name on it in the future. And, and go ask the Egyptians they tried. You can't, as you know, what? Can't take it with you. They surrounded themselves in death with all of their stuff and it got plundered by grave robbers and now it's museum pieces. Is that what we're banking our life on? And throughout the book, the wise, wealthy, powerful, influential, Holy Spirit-led teacher asks this question of us. What are you investing your life in that will actually endure? Money is fine, but it is missed. It is hebel in Hebrew. It's missed. It will not produce all the things we think that we sing about. And Tevia thinks would give him all the stuff he thinks. Now that's his quick look. I want to step back and look at two big picture pieces of wisdom from Scripture that I found really helpful. What is a biblical picture of money and wealth and possessions? All right, there's a lot we can do. This just big picture here. First of all, this is really important in church because sometimes we miss this. Let me say this really clearly. Money is not evil and having money is not wrong. Let me say that again. It's really important. Money is not evil and having money 
is not wrong. And sometimes you'll go to church and you'll feel guilt-tripped about having money in any way. That's not what Jesus says. That's not what the teacher says. In fact, he says quite the opposite in some ways. It's not evil. Having money is not wrong. I just put some examples up here. In fact, if you look throughout Scripture, there are all sorts of characters, people in the story of God, who have great wealth and use that wealth to do great things. You hear me? All throughout the Bible, I'm just giving you a few examples, but all throughout the Bible, there are people who have great wealth and do great things with it. Uh, One is Abraham and Sarah, right? The father of faith, father and mother of faith, right? The whole line of faithfulness comes from Abraham and Sarah. In fact, I, I don't think Christianity is a religion. It's a way of life Jesus invites us to. But if you want to think about the three great religions of the world, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, It all comes from Abraham and Sarah. And he was a wealthy man. They were a wealthy family. In fact, if you pay attention to that part of the story, which we often don't, Abraham is incredibly generous and blesses everybody around. In fact, that was God's intent. He said, I'm going to bless you, Abraham, so that you will be a blessing. Not a miser, but a blessing. And all you had to do was get your life around Abraham's and you were blessed. Follow the patriarchs in the story. That happens to all of them. Really cool is it? Or I think of Boaz. We did a whole series on the book of Ruth. And we don't often think about this part, but Naomi and her mother-in-law come into, I mean, and Ruth, uh, uh, her daughter-in-law, come into the land impoverished and hopeless. And what is it that turned it around? A wealthy older man who follows God's call to be generous to the poor. And everything changes when he gives generously. And it's not just that they're blessed individually. As you know, if you've read this story, it ends in the bloodline of Jesus himself coming into the world through the generosity of money. He was a wealthy man, and he used it for the glory of God. Or I love the way the chosen is depicting Joanna. If you want another example doesn't get enough attention, go read the first few verses of Luke chapter 8, and you get a list of women who are the financial backers of Jesus' ministry. Joanna is one of them. She is married to essentially the chief of staff, of King Herod, and she uses her wealth to bankroll the ministry of a man who's largely homeless and poor. And she makes a big difference in the world. I love the way she's depicted in that. She gets the honor that she's due. So what what is the first thing that you see in Scripture? Money is not evil. Having money is not wrong or bad. In, In fact, we didn't read this, but we read it a couple weeks ago. Let me remind you of verse 19 in the same chapter. Here's what the teacher says. Money's a gift. Verse 19, money. When when God gives someone wealth and possessions and the ability to enjoy them, to accept their portion, remember that? And to be happy in their toil, this is a gift of God. It's a gift. And some people misquote 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, to say money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. If you've read the verse, do you know what it says? The love of money is the root of all of it. That's totally different. That's what the teacher says. Those who love wealth and love money are setting themselves up for disaster. Having money isn't evil. It's not wrong. It's not bad in and of itself. In fact, I want to make this quick point here. Um, sometimes in Christian history, we actually act like poverty is the spiritual thing. Have you ever thought about this? Think about this for a moment. I I credit this to Dallas Willard. He writes this beautiful book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. He has a whole chapter entitled, Is Poverty Spiritual? Because we act like if we really were following Jesus, we would just give all of it away. Now, I want to be really clear. Some people, and you may be one of them, some people are called to a vow of poverty. 
Some people are called to give it all away to the poor. Some for a season, some for their whole lives. Mother Teresa changed the world as a follower of Jesus, and yes, she is, a follower of Jesus by giving it all away. Francis of Assisi is another one. I know a good friend of mine, his early part of his life, he and his wife devoted themselves to live below the poverty line in the United States of America. Now, he's chosen not to do that anymore, but God called him to do that. Some of you may be called to that. But I think that gift of poverty is similar to the gift of celibacy and singleness, Everybody is invited to that at some point in time, usually, but not most people. So here's what Willard said. I just throw it out here. I think it's helpful. He said, the calling of people of God, for the most part, unless you're called to poverty, and there's a place for that, is to be stewards of what God gives you. And if you give it all away, you've given up the ability to steward it. Now, hear me. If we don't listen to the second part of what I'm saying, we could say, oh, great. Let's just have it all, and we'll do what we want with it. No, hoarding and all that has already been warned. But... But here's the thing. God gives our gift and our money and our possessions as a gift to steward it for the kingdom of God. Money is not evil. Having money is not wrong. Now, here's the part that we really need to hear often because if I live in that world too much, I'm not going to do anything differently. This is really important. Listen, in the Bible, God makes it clear money is not neutral either. Money is a power. Now, follow me on this one because sometimes we miss this. Often we'll talk about money's just like a hammer. It's a tool I can use it for good or bad. No, money doesn't stay put. Jesus makes it clear money is a power. He personalizes it and spiritualizes. It's not evil or bad, but it is a power that will take us over if we're not careful. And we've heard it before in a very familiar passage in one of his most famous sermons in Matthew chapter 6. Jesus says this. You cannot serve two masters. Either you're going to love the one and hate the other, or you'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and what most of our translations say. Money. It's not what he says. Jesus says you cannot serve both God and mammon. You're like, what's up with that? So we're going to translate it because we understand money. No. In the ancient world, there was a pagan god of greed and indulgence called Mammon. And Jesus personalizes money. And he says it is a potential master that wants to dominate your life. And if we're not careful and we're just passive with it, money doesn't stay put. It wants to dominate us. By the way, like a lot of other things, the teacher tries to find joy in, but that's subject of other sermons. Here's the way Richard Foster puts it. By the way, if you want a great read on this, best book I've ever read on anything on money, it's, it's a third of the book. It used to be called Money, Sex, and Power. That's the best title of the book. For some reason, they changed it to The Challenge of the Disciplined Life. I think because he wrote Celebration of Discipline. Who knows? It's Money, Sex, and Power. That's what it's about. Here's what he says. Money is not just a neutral medium of exchange. It is a power with a life of its own. Mammon is a power that seeks to dominate us. And if we are wise, you don't talk about this with everybody, but we have some people in our life, our closest loved ones, maybe some close followers of Jesus that walk with us, and we get real with money. Here's the crazy thing. We will not talk about money with anybody. Does that tell us something about it? It's a power. And so part of our disciple-making as followers of Jesus is that we get real with money, with each other. Why? Because it's going to dominate us. Another way to put it, money is fine to have in your life. It's horrible to have at the center of your life. Is that fair? 
So quickly, I want to do this quickly. Three principles that I've learned that help us walk more lightly, have a healthy perspective, simple practices for a healthy view of money. Three things. First of all, and understand what I mean by this, admit our wealth. Admit our wealth. Hear me, I'm going to say this really, really clearly. This is not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip. But it is awareness. Here we need to know this, United States of America, we're all rich. I know you think, well, I ain't got any money yet. You're rich. If you spent five, seven bucks like I did on a latte anytime recently, you're rich. <laughs> I'm laughing, but again, this is not guilt. Hear me, this is not guilt. It's just awareness, and we can forget it in the United States of America. So let me just say, the United Nations gives us this statistic. One billion people in the world live on less than a dollar a day. Can we just take that in for a moment? One billion People live on less than I spend on coffee in a year. Not guilt. I'm still going to drink my coffee. Hopefully a little more aware. Here's, a, here's another way to think about it. Uh, I want to make sure to give you where the statistics are. I'm going to make this stuff up. The World Food Program of the U.S. World Food Program, they want to feed hungry people. They did an estimate. How much would it cost a year to feed the, hunger, uh, the hungry in the world who can't feed themselves? And I know it's more complicated than this. There's corrupt people. I'm just talking numbers, okay? So what would it take? The estimate is $40 billion a year to pay for the food to feed the people who can't feed themselves. So I'm just thinking, again, not guilt, not guilt, just awareness. I just want to think about two other stacks that just blew me away when I thought about this. Do you know how much money we spend in the United States on diet-related things to take in less calories? I'm one of them. I need it. <laughs> Do you know how much we pay? 30 to 50 billion dollars. What's the average of that? Exactly the money it would take to feed the world to get me to stop eating. Not guilt, just awareness. Or the other one that opens my eyes. Do you know what we spend a year in the United States of America for storage units, for stuff we don't use? 37.5 billion dollars. Not guilt. It is awareness. If we take the stuff we don't even need, we could feed the world. So hear me. This is not beating everybody up. He says it's a gift. It's a gift. We are gifted and we are rich. So when we read those passages in the Bible, when Jesus is talking about the rich, do not think Elon Musk, it's me and it is you. So with that, what do we do? Secondly, connect with the poor. And I would say this very clearly. Charles is right there. He's one of my discipleship guys. He will, he will, he will back me up in this. I'm not preaching this from, I do this really, really well. What, I've been, what have I been praying about the last several weeks with you, Charles? I want to connect with the poor more, and I don't do it enough. Hang out with people who already know Jesus a lot, and hang out with people who have a lot of money. My wife leads the way in that. I want her to disciple me in this. Connect with the poor. Why? Listen, this isn't just to go give them stuff. What does Jesus say in Matthew 25? If you give something to the least of these, you've given it to him. What does that mean? Mother Teresa taught us this or tried to. She said, when I go and interact with the poor, I'm not just giving them stuff. I'm seeing Jesus there. So the ability to connect with the poor gives me a place of connection, not just with money, but with the Savior of the world. And lastly, I love this. comes straight from Foster. Dethrone the idol of money. Here's a cool thing. If you read in the Old Testament, people like Josiah and other people would come across these pagan worship sites. 
It was not enough just to get rid of them. They would, they would desecrate them. It was cool. There was like a ceremony. They would desecrate them. They would dethrone that idol and say, God's the real God. What would it look like? I encourage you, be creative. How can we dethrone, how can we show that money isn't the most important thing? Francis of Assisi famously buried it in a manure. So if you ever followed Assisi around, you're like, yeah, I'm just kidding. But he would, he would find ways to desecrate money. Not in a negative way. You know, here's the number one way to do it. You know it. You know it, don't you? The number one way to dethrone the idol of money is what? Give it away. Hear me. I'm not asking for your money. I'm not saying give it to me. I'm just talking about the practice of generosity among the people of God has been one of the ways to get it out of the center of our life and say we're going to be open-handed, Bible's language, to the poor and to the needy and to the broken. I think it's really important here. Jansen referred to this before, so let me say this. Like, a teacher taught me this a long time ago, and I, I went back and I thought, wow, is this really true? But I think it is. Check me on this. Do you know Jesus never asked anybody for money? Did you ever think about this? As far as I know, he never asked anybody for money. He'd pull out a coin to make a point. But as far as I know, he never asked anybody for money. Now, people gave some, but he didn't ask for it. But why is it that Jesus talked about, for the people that count up such things, he talked about money and possessions more than anything other than the kingdom of God. Why did he do that? Because Jesus doesn't want your money. By the way, he's pretty rich. He doesn't need it. But what does Jesus want? He wants your heart. And Jesus is smart enough to know that one of the major obstacles to our allegiance to God in our heart is our money and our stuff. That's why he said, I don't want your money, but use it as a pulse, a barometer, a meter to you. Because, Jesus' words, where your treasure is, there will be your... Gosh, help me. Where your treasure is, there will be your... Right? He's smart enough to know. He doesn't want your money or need it. But sometimes that may be the very thing that gets me free to worship our God. Dethrone that idol and put Jesus on center stage. You know, I always love to talk about like God raises up people in my life. By the way, there many of you are right here. I talked to somebody right before we came in here just to thank him for being a model of God's heart towards money. Hear me. It's not about money. It's about heart. Let me tell you quickly about a guy and we'll be done. Dan Zimmerly is a man who models the heart of God in this way to me. Sometime I'll tell you, I've told the Bible class before, but and some of our discipleship guys, the, the best lesson he's ever taught me. But this is something, he didn't tell me anything. I just found out about it little by little and just walking with him as a mentor. His incredible heart for the people of God. And it comes out, he's, he makes cabinets. He owns a cabinet company. He said, I tried to be a minister, I was horrible. But he makes cabinets for Jesus. He really does. Two things that just came out in conversations. Right before I left, I was getting some wisdom for him, from him about doing a coaching business. I was just getting started, as you know, some leadership coaching. He was talking about, yeah, I've got a good guy that I, I, I've got in my business that he, he takes people in their 20s and he pays like a thousand bucks a month to have people come and coach leadership for his people. Like he invests in young people. He just does that. He just doesn't ask for anything for it. But my favorite story, we went for a fundraiser for a nonprofit in town and we're, it was getting rained out. So we're standing in the clubhouse and this 25 year old guy comes up and says, man, I owe my life to Dan. He said, our relationship started. We were just playing golf one time and he realized I didn't have any equipment. So he bought me a really nice driver. <laughs> that was the start. It was just his moment of generosity. He said, we played golf a few times. He led me to the Lord on a golf course. He said, I owe my life in every possible way to the generosity of Dan, not just in his money and a driver that he gave him. Here's Dan's passion. He uses his money to introduce people one way or another to Jesus. 
And he's modeling what the teacher is crying out and begging us to do. Invest your life in something that endures. Father God, that's our prayer. That you would inspire us, Father, first to receive the gift of whatever that it is that we have. With thankfulness for joy, we even appreciate it and and enjoy it. Father, let us be open-handed and generous to participate with you, the God, the giver of all things, so that we might see lives eternally changed in this world. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.